0: Welcome to the premiere of Founded. Today, we interview Connor Mortel, an economics professor in the making, a staunch libertarian, and a proud owner of a flamethrower. Settle in for your morning drive, sporadic hobby, or otherwise. And without further ado, here is our podcast. On the podcast today, we have Connor Mortel. He writes for the Mises Institute occasionally. He runs an Instagram account called Constitution of No Authority, and uh, in general, is a political theorist.
1: Uh, hey guys like you said my name's Connor Mortell. I uh he he kind of covered the bases there. I I've written for the Mises Institute 6 or 7 times. I've written for the Libertarian Institute once and antiwar.com a couple times. Uh for the most part I'm just uh an MBA student at FSU, but I I love libertarianism and I get involved wherever I can.
2: So to start off at the very beginning, um where did you grow
1: up? So I was born and raised in the happiest seaside town of America, Stewart, Florida. I, uh, I spoke in Fort Worth, Texas to go to TCU, go frogs. Yeah, and right out on. of college, I actually moved back here and have lived back in Stewart for another, I think three years now kind of gets away from you real fast though. But yeah, it's been South Florida, the vast majority of my life.
2: That's super cool, man. So I I was looking at your bio and not stalking you at all. Just looking at your publicly available bio. And I saw that you went to Texas Christian. What drew you there? And how, like, what role does faith play in your life?
1: So I, uh, I was drawn to Texas Christian because my dad had gone there. So I've been growing up going to, going to my Horn Frog games ever since I was a little kid. When I, uh, when I applied for college, my college guidance counselor made me apply to more schools than just them. So I applied to Boston college, got in, turned down Boston college before I'd heard back from TCU and then got into TCU because really to me, there was no other option. I've loved there since I was a little little kid. It's my favorite place in the world. I love everything about it. Um, as for what, what role faith plays in my life or in my childhood or whichever one, the question was there. Uh, it's a huge role, although really it has no connection to that college there. It's a mm. – TCU was pretty Christian in name only. I was the uh, the president of my Christian fraternity out there. Right. Faith's on. uh, probably one of the most important things in my life. It is, it is the most important thing in my life. However, it's really unconnected to me as a TCU grad just because it's, despite its name, not all that Christian of a school.
0: Yeah, yeah. See, yeah. I, I used to live in Texas right around the Fort Worth area, and I always thought it was like – I remember thinking like, you know, I really should go to TCU because it's just this bastion of like Christian faith and every, and then my mom was like, if you're, if you're going there for like a church, like college experience, no, no, you're going to be disappointed, but it's still a great place. And you know, it's where my mom went. It's nice to see other people graduating uh, from there. Well,
1: absolutely. And like I said, I, I was able to find Christian organizations. I was a part of the Catholic community. I was in a Christian fraternity. It was a, there were, There's an opportunity to have a Christian college lifestyle if you want that to be part of your college lifestyle there. But that's not what you sign up to go to TCU for by any means. But the Mm. most important takeaway of that is that your mom went to TCU. Go freaking frogs. I love to hear that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that is awesome. We always like to think of Miles as our resident Texan also because he's constantly talking about Texas. And so we're just like, okay, cool yeah and he's like the least should be and he's like the least texas looking guy like at least stereotypically mm -hmm. but he's like the most texas at heart it's pretty impressive do you want to take the next question miles
0: uh yeah so um and so this one is from caleb uh he he says what was your interest in chinese language and culture studies at tcu so
1: i growing up when i was in the sixth grade I had to pick at my school between studying Chinese and studying Spanish and I couldn't roll my R's. So as a 12 year old, I made the impulse decision to take Chinese. But then six years later I was going to college and had spent the last six years studying Chinese and didn't want to give it up. So TCU was just then starting out a minor. I figured out why not? I'll try it. And I ended up minoring in Chinese language and culture, uh, unfortunately since then i have kind of given it up i haven't practiced as much as i like to i still uh Mm. like you saw i was in my bio because i'm still happy to humble brag and pretend to speak chinese and i still could get (laughs) by but i definitely am not as fluent as i once was but yeah honestly i i ended up minoring in it just off of a impulse decision i made when i was 12 but i loved every second of it
2: that's a great impulse decision and that's a great way to find a minor and a major just impulse. (laughs) yeah that's how I plan to do mine so honestly
1: that's nobody knows what they're doing anyway you may as well just shoot for the shoot in the dark and hope you end up in the right spot
0: exactly exactly well have you found any well Caleb Caleb and I might be a little bit different than that because he and I have been like all over see he and I have been homeschooled for the first half of our lives then I went to public school um and of course homeschooling is the way to go uh I only realized that later in life when I couldn't make the decision. But uh, he and I have pretty much, and I don't mean to speak for you, Caleb. But he and I have pretty much been on the whole, like, he's been on the religion train, like, theology. That's what he wants to go into. And I've been on the philosophy train, like, since middle school. Like, and
2: math. Don't let him fool you. He's a math, math Mm-hmm.
1: But, uh, yeah. Well, I'm an Austrian economist. I don't know how to do math, but... <laughs> <laughs>
2: So, with your focus on Austrian economics and also Chinese studies, have you found like Chinese libertarians?
1: Not really. No. Uh, the only use I've actually gotten out of my out of my Chinese background was that I I used to work for the State House of Representatives for two years here in Florida, and I Run one on. time had a constituent who spoke Chinese and not English and was able to translate a little and make that make that conversation happen but that's the only time I've in any professional sense of the word used my used my Chinese background at all I have not I'm sure if I check my Instagram page I've got like one Chinese follower somewhere out there but that's about all I can say I have not really found much there
2: that's awesome but yeah I don't know you would think that somewhere along the line there has to be a Chinese libertarian we're gonna have to find them now and track them down
1: (laughs) oh I'm sure I just I speak enough Chinese to like survive, but I don't think I could get into a political theory debate in Chinese. <laughs> that that'd have to be a job of someone else to really track down that. I'll get the conversation started, but then someone smarter <laughs> than me is going to have to take over from there.
2: Yeah, that's understandable. <laughs> I don't blame you at all. I mean, yeah. Miles will attest to this. We're both ticking. Or he already took Spanish. I'm taking Spanish now. Mm-hmm. And I
0: absolutely hate it, like, with the yeah. depth of passion. Spanish in public school is the worst. Because in my class, we had to, like, go up to the teacher for our final exam and do a verbal review where you have to have a conversation with them. And so just like an exam, you get stuck on a question. And you're just sitting there and you're like, hmm, well, what's this? But in a conversation, you can't do th- She's like, she asks you a question like, um was your brother based on the paper i just gave you and then i'm like you can't just sit there well you can sit there and she's, she'll let you do that but you sit there and you think about the question and everyone at the class is looking up at you and it's the it's the worst feeling ever and so you choose between answering quickly and not being embarrassed and keeping the flow of conversation and and you might get that question you probably will get that question wrong or or, or not But then everyone's like, um, why are you pausing for 20 seconds? And it's just the worst thing. I was so glad to get out. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So
2: another great question. What drew you to libertarian politics? Like what made you decide to become a libertarian? Was it something that was important growing up in your family or was it something you found on
0: your own?
1: So my dad actually worked in politics when I was a kid and did a really good job of keeping politics out of that house. The politics were not a part of my family at all. I, uh, I got drawn to libertarianism when I was in college. I was, uh, it was my macroeconomics class at TCU. My professor was an mm-hmm. Austrian economist, and he assigned me Thomas Sowell's basic economics and Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson and I was hooked I mean I it took me a while to really fully dive into it but it was from that moment on that I started veering libertarian mm. it was probably until my senior spring before I actually found the Mises Institute and shows like part of the problem Tom would mm. show that started mm. making me really take the deep dive off totally off the cliff into libertarianism but it began in that freshman econ class where I had to read Hazlitt, which is I obviously I stand by to this day the best introduction to libertarianism or to Austrian economics because it's so easy and it's not really intensely libertarian, but it, the whole book is obviously about how an Austrian would think and really kind of an extension of Bastiat's seen and unseen. And it's just so freaking good.
2: Yeah. Honestly, I think a lot of people are undervalued the aspects of the economic standpoints of libertarians and just go straight to the drugs and the roads Mm -hmm. and all the little other details when there's a Mm -hmm. lot of very interesting libertarian principles
1: and the economics is what we're so freaking good on as libertarians i mean a lot of things you can find other groups that are good on these issues if not, if not, perfect everywhere. Well I was—I literally just before this was listening to a uh, his uh, show, what he did with uh, with Buck Rebel where he's talking about uh, or Buck Johnson, where he's talking about um, Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals, and one of the rules they had was uh, to keep the conversation in your forte, like don't let them draw you out of your domain economics as libertarian is our domain that's the thing that we get right and nobody else does we have got austrian economics and it's this totally ignored piece of intelligence that's just so unbelievably valuable
0: truly truly yeah so one thing i've been wondering uh to ask a libertarian economist about is how do you feel about, and this is something I've kept up with forever, how do you feel about the hijacking of libertarian economics by uh, the Republican Party, and yet then when it comes time to vote, there's never any action from them?
1: Well, and it's not even just there's not any action from them. It's even even a step further that it's hijacking when it suits them. Mm -hmm. It is... Mm. they'll be they'll be libertarian one each one inch deep but you scratch the surface of that and there's a lot lacking of it i will say obviously there are more republicans who are very good on austrian economics than you'll find elsewhere within mainstream talks i mean obviously rand paul knows austrian yes. economics. he's not yes. one inch deep mm-hmm. but the majority of them who will use a talking point or whatnot like quite frankly oh i don't have it next to me i thought i had Hazlitt's book on my desk um <laughs> But the book I was just talking about has it—the whole you've got to look at the seen and unseen. A Republican will say that line all day long, and mm. then won't look at the unseen. They'll just point out the unseen of the, of their opponent, which honestly, from a strategy perspective, I understand. But it's mm-hmm. it's definitely underwhelming. I do like guys like uh like so Bush so Bishop who are out. Working in the Republican uh, Party and really teaching them not just like surface level Austrian economics, but really giving them Rothbard books, teaching them Rothbardian and Misesian economics. I I moved spots to make my Wi-Fi connection better, but I had my I had my Tho Bishop koozie on my Coke I was drinking. Oh. <laughs> um, but there's there's definitely opportunity to, to teach them that, and there's you can see that starting to happen. But it is infuriating seeing anyone even if it's a libertarian there are libertarians who don't know their economics either when they try and use the austrian economics without the background in it and really miss some of the value of austrian economics left and right Yeah. yeah
0: but like i mean it's specifically what what i'd like to get your opinion on are like you'll see the senate hearings with with republicans that'll be like they'll they'll have these like um they'll these stands with like these big posters up and they'll be like oh well the democrats want you to sign off on this like to me i see that as the magician doing the misdirection right there they might even be right they might have a level of complexity to whatever they're pointing out that is right but yeah. uh, just like you said like it's an inch deep to libertarianism but then you look right past and it's like wait but what's what's beyond like there's something else you should be looking at particularly the things that they're signing off on, these things that they can really just brush over, the left wing will not cover because they are for raising taxes. So it's, they're not going to say, well, no, you don't understand libertarianism. If the Libertarian Party can't get a candidate to office, at le- the least they can do is correct the Republican Party and say, no, no, this isn't real libertarianism because the left wing won't do it.
1: Well, and that, that really is what you just said right there. You hit the he- nail on the head. Uh, the, the one job of the Libertarian Party. At the end of the day, like you said, they're not getting anybody to office. Their one job is to correct everyone else and show that it's really put pressure on people to learn these things. Uh, challenge the right people to say, look, you need to learn this. We won't challenge you if you're good on this, but you need to step back on that. I... I uh, I Right now, I'm starting the uh, the Libertarian Party at Martin County here with a Oof. couple other people. And as I'm doing it, I I don't know what faith I have in the future. But my one goal, if I can just keep spreading that message, I don't know that the Libertarian Party is necessarily the most effective route for liberty. However, I know right now where I am in my life. It's a route I can take. and you need to be hammering those messages of, oh my God, you're sitting here talking about X, Y, and Z, but you're not getting it. You're missing, you talk about it for five seconds and then you actually apply the first step of it and then you give up there because there are no optics to it beyond that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I and absolutely I, agree with what you just said. Yes. That, mm-hmm. No, but go the, ahead, sorry. Yeah,
0: well, and the, the other thing though is I think people confuse political usefulness with, Getting elected. And when you look at historically, like the Ron Paul campaigns, like, you know, never got never got elected to uh, the office of the president. But those campaigns really built the modern day Libertarian Party, he really hammered it home to people, and let people know exactly what the Libertarian Party was about through those campaigns, and never was elected. And I think people if, if people look at it from that mindset, I think a lot more people would run as libertarian. And I think we'd make a lot more grounds on that in that area.
1: Yeah, for, and I mean, obviously, Ron Paul was running as a Republican, but it also was a different time as the Internet. Mm-hmm. But you're exactly mm-hmm. right that at the end of the day, it's not it's not about that. It's about the value of him getting up and hammering home a message every single day. And the other thing, too, was it wasn't just the libertarian message it was the libertarian message that mattered at the time. We were coming out of Bush's presidency and going into the recession, and his two big issues were end of the wars, end the Fed. These are the two things that got us into the problems we're in. And uh, it's like Dave Smith says, it's really easy to have the right opinions after the fact. It's a whole other story to say them while they're happening and while you're facing facing these issues. And that's what he did, and that's what the libertarian party needs to do. And quite frankly, that's what the Liberty Republicans need to do, and they're, they're doing a good job of it right now, those of them that there are, they need to hammer the issues that matter when they matter, not 10 years after they matter. And like you said, that's the value in Ron Paul, his, his 2008 and 2012 campaigns mm-hmm. never had anything to do with him becoming president. In fact, I think he'd be the first to say, you can hear him say it all the time, where he'll say, if he'd won, he would have been sent on a uh, convertible ride through Dallas, he at no point believed he was sitting in that room by any chance, but he was still getting up there knowing full well that he had no chance of being there, hammering home the message when it mattered and how it mattered. And that's the most important thing you can do as a Libertarian.
0: Yeah. you know, really? and, and to that point, uh, what is your opinion on the Dave Smith, uh, Michael Malice uh, campaign, which they've going to ask in, that question. in 2024? I'm, I'm excited for that. I knew you were going to ask that question.
1: So I haven't voted in years. I, like I said, don't know if I believe the Libertarian Party is the path to liberty. I mean, I'm, I'm working on it, but I, I don't. I'm, I go back and forth. I have zero doubt that if Dave Smith is the candidate, I will walk myself over to the poll and put in a vote because the Libertarian Party deserves to be rewarded for running that candidate if they do. My, yes. I don't know how anyone's opinion could be if the Libertarian Party is going to be the way, that's not how it should do it. They are phenomenal. If if for nothing else, I want Michael Malice holding the keys to the Twitter uh, the Twitter page, that'll be the greatest <laughs> thing that's ever happened to the Libertarian oh, yeah. Party. Yes. So you... Yeah, I, uh, I, I've got nothing but positive things to say about the two of them.
0: Yes, and also in 2024, I will be eligible to vote and you better believe that... I'm voting Dave Smith, Michael Malice. There won't be another thought to it. I don't care who else runs. It'll it'll just be incredible.
2: Well, I'm writing in Kanye. Yeah, see, I'm jealous. 24. When I
1: was first eligible to vote, I voted for Gary Johnson. And I would much rather have had Dave Smith be the first person. Gary Johnson was also the last person I voted for, because I haven't voted since that election, because I was so disappointed after the fact that I actually voted for Gary Johnson. I'm very jealous that you'll be walking out with your first vote being for Dave Smith. That is a yes. much better memory to have.
2: Really, truly, truly. So my question is, other than that, who are your main political influences? Like who does it really center around when it comes to political influence in your life?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a tough one because it's a long list. Mm. Um, like I said, obviously it was my, my economics professor in college who drew me here. Uh, but as far as now goes, anyone who's ever worked for the Mises Institute, first and foremost, they are Mm. the single greatest organization that's ever existed on the planet. Anytime Jeff Dice speaks for anything, I drop everything and listen to that. Mm. Same goes for Tho Bishop. And I'm not even going to name names for their, because the answer is their whole staff over the Mises, all their fellows, all their staff, everyone there. Uh, I listen a lot to his show. I probably would say that might be my favorite influence, just because I never know what I'm going to get out of that, and if I'm going to agree with him or if I'm going to disagree with him. It, 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 but he, I know I'm going to walk away challenged and having been influenced in some form or fashion once I listen to his show. Obviously, you got Dave Smith and Tom Woods, Ron Paul, um, Rothbard, and Mises. Uh, but first and foremost, I got to say, literally anything that comes out of the Mises Institute is going to be my main influence just because they are without a doubt the greatest organization there is on the planet.
2: Yeah, they certainly have done some really amazing work to forward the cause of like true liberty as it's understood by people who actually think about these things.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what have you thought about? So apart from the Republican, so actual Republican candidates, um, what do you think about people, conservatives on YouTube that have in recent years now identified as libertarian? Examples being uh, Ben Shapiro. I don't know if people like Dave Rubin identify as libertarian, uh, but a, a big one is Ben Shapiro. I, I'm interested to see what you think about that.
1: So I'm, I'm probably going to straw man him a little bit because I don't actually follow Ben Shapiro. And obviously I'm familiar with him because he's Ben Shapiro. But I've never actually watched his stuff beyond a clip here or there. So I'm probably going to over-criticize him a little bit. Um, first and foremost, you can't be a libertarian and have Ben Shapiro's foreign policy. Those are, those are directly right. contradicting things. So I hate seeing him call himself a libertarian because the average person is not like me with Mises.org as the bookmark that comes up when they open, when they open their uh, laptop. The average person, when they hear libertarian either is going to be thinking of the Libertarian Party or is going to be thinking of someone who is a giant name like Ben Shapiro and takes that, takes that name Libertarian. They hear it from there and it does kind of muddy the word. I, I've tended in the past to be a big tent Libertarian, but that's faded by the day. I've become much more pro-gatekeeping and saying, look, Libertarian is a word that means something and we won't just include everyone. You have to believe In libertarianism, you can't just take this word. Um, That being said, there is part of me that's just choosing to be blindly optimistic here, that I do appreciate that the word libertarian is a desirable thing for someone like a Republican to call themselves, because they know to their base, it sounds like, oh, that makes me more anti-government and my base will like that. There's something to be said about a case for optimism there that if they want to be called that because they think their base will like them more for that, that means that their base is demonstrating some proclivity for leaning libertarian and there's, there's a window mm-hmm. to be had there. Um, but at the end of the day, you don't want someone muddying the actual philosophy that we have because we do have phenomenal philosophy out there. You don't want someone saying, I'm a libertarian who's pro horrendous foreign policy, because that's no longer a libertarian.
2: Do you think in some ways that may be the, and I don't think this is a positive future scenario, but I think it's a possible future scenario where we have a libertarian who is actually elected to office, but it turns out he's just a Republican in libertarian clothing.
1: Mm, Yes and no. One, I'm not really betting on any scenario where a libertarian gets elected to office whatsoever.
2: Very Um, understandable. That
1: being said, most people who are a Republican in Libertarian's clothing are not going to run as a Libertarian. They're going to run as a Republican in Republican's clothing because they're much more likely to get to office there anyway. There'd be no reason for them to stoop down to a third party, with the exception of, I mean, we've got uh, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld were both former Republicans, and especially Bill Weld was a Republican in Libertarian's clothing. Even, obviously, you'd have to be on a lower level than president, but at the end of the day, even there, a guy like Bill Wells Clothing, I don't know why he wouldn't just run to be a Republican in a Republican clothing, because that's far more popular to the average person now anyway, so there's no strategy reason to step down unless you're kind of getting ousted from the Republican Party anyway. Um, so I, I think it would depend but realistically I don't see that as that likely just because I don't see the incentive for the person to run that way
2: right yeah that makes total sense you also said that you don't expect libertarians to win and this is a question I've wanted to ask a lot of different libertarians is like how do you reconcile that with the hard work that multiple people you included have put into running and like forwarding the message of libertarianism how do you like reconcile that with the fact that we're kind of doomed as a party some days.
1: Um, so that I've got a couple answers to that one. Cause for one, it really depends on the day you guys caught me on a day. I'm more black and I'm guessing, ah, I don't know if I'll ever see him when maybe there's another day where I'm more <laughs> optimistic. But the other thing I will say to that, one, as far as the hard work I've put in, I tend to, I don't believe that Liberty is doomed to fail I just don't necessarily that I believe that a libertarian will end up in office. Those, those are two different claims there. Uh, I don't think that means that the libertarians running for office have no value. I just think it's unlikely that their value comes from them ever making it to office. It's more from putting pressure on others to get things more right and increase liberty elsewhere by the pressure of running against the right people. I mean, to, mm. to Additionally, the... as far as the work I've done, I, oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, so do you maybe see the Libertarian Party as like the sacrificial party? Like they they spend they spend their time pressuring other parties to improve, and then kind they mm-hmm, and they end up not getting the the credit in history.
1: Yeah, I I, I would not describe that as as incorrect. I, I think there's something you said. That. I was talking to uh, I was at the State of Florida Libertarian Party's Christmas party. I can't remember who it was I was talking to, but someone that sounds was like a really about. fun
2: event, by the way.
1: It actually was very funny. You know, it's funny. It was my first libertarian party event. I'd mm-hmm. been to stuff with the Mises Institute and Tom Woods, so I'd been to libertarian movement events, but I'd never been to the to a party event. And I didn't know, I didn't know how I was going to feel. But it was it was actually a blast. In hindsight, um, but when I was there, I was talking to someone okay. who was talking about one of our candidates here, Mike Turmont. I actually might have been talking to him. This might be a quote from him himself, but I think it was someone else that said. He kind of is going into this knowing he's going to lose and he's putting in all this work knowing he's getting no credit from anyone outside this room, but he's doing it anyway. And there's something to be said about that that, that takes an admirable kind of person. And it's a tough thing to convince yourself to do. Um, Lord knows, I don't think I'd do it, at least not in this point in my life. I and mean, obviously I'm working in the Libertarian Party, but there's a difference between affiliating a... a a party chapter and actually being the candidate up in front putting in that work and just getting nothing for it but knowing that you're fighting the good fight Mm. and there is something to be said about that kind of like what you said being the sacrificial lamb or being the spoiler going out and actually running to make sure someone else wins because you want to spoil that election knowing that it'll further you liberty or it may put pressure on them they are thankless jobs but i'm impressed when people do them for sure
2: Mm-hmm. Certainly. Now, also to speak back to something you were saying earlier, would you see almost libertarians as like the watchdogs of the two more central parties, kind of calling them on their, you know, BS when they have it?
1: I wouldn't see that now. Oh, but I'd say that at their best, that's what they should be. Let's libertarian ideas be influence and liberty, liberty, however they'd like to go about it. But I I definitely say that the Libertarian Party at its best would be doing that. Yes. Hmm. I don't know that it's been at its best for the last couple of years, but I'm seeing improvement going forward.
2: Certainly, certainly. I think that's certainly a noble way of thinking about the Libertarian Party and being able to hold that in contention with the fact that maybe we're not always going to get that office in local government or the great office of president or whatever, but that we have a place in this
0: political arena. Maybe well, the most crucial place. And on top to be of
1: it, I uh, I don't know. <clears throat> oh yeah, absolutely. And on top of it, I don't know if you've uh, if you've ever seen the show, uh, the Biting the Bullet podcast. But I was watching one of their episodes. Gosh, it might have been a couple years ago now. It was at least a year ago, and they did an episode on Boogaloo strategy, which is not what I'm about to get into. I'm just taking one of his quotes from it. But he said, the most of, one of the their guests they had on, I can't remember his name, but the guy they had on was talking about how the most important people in the Underground Railroad back when that was such an important moment in history were not Harriet Tubman, but each person who had a house that let live, that mm-hmm. let Harriet Tubman in, and mm-hmm. we're not gonna remember. 99% of their names. I mean, the best historians going to find 1% of their names, but most of them are going to be forgotten in history. The Libertarian, part, jo- the libertarian Party's job is to be those people ha- having the houses and letting this, letting the Libertarian movement do what it needs to do. And it probably will be forgotten in history because what it did was make the Republicans better, maybe make a Democrat better, depending on the area it is, but it made other people get the glory that was needed for the betterment of our civilization. And odds are in history, it'll be remembered less well than those people whose houses we don't remember the names of. But that's that's what its job has to be if it wants to have any success, in my opinion.
0: It's yeah, interesting. So uh, moving on with another question here. Um, so when we, when we look at uh, the type of stuff you do, like working for the the Mises Institute, and uh, I mean, clearly a really smart guy, uh, what prompted you to start doing a meme page? It seems, you know, a little bit, a little bit of a change.
1: So I, um, I started a meme page back when I worked for the State House of Representatives. Uh, Someone else who had worked for the legislature had talked to me And they said, you know, I was kind of scrolling through your Twitter and you said some, some stuff. You may want to delete that because that could come back to haunt you. And I absolutely didn't want to get fired. I I loved my boss. I don't think he would have fired me for that, but I didn't want to cause any, any issues at the office. Mm -hmm. So I, I deleted all my old Twitter and I thought, okay, well, I like, I like expressing my beliefs because quite frankly, if I just talk to the people in my real life, I'm not going to have people left in my real life to listen to because they're going to be real sick of that. So I made my, my Instagram page constitution of no authority just to post whatever nonsense was on my mind, post something on my Instagram story, really not to have anyone follow, but to just yell out into the void. Mm. And I started posting whatever meme I thought of just again, yelling into the void not really saying anything just to get it out of my system so i could go into work and be the good party line republican um but then over time i just started enjoying having the stupid meme page like as stupid as it is it's been a blast it's there are like three thousand people listening to me yelling into the void now which is ridiculous i I see other pages with 10 times that, and I am I'm impressed, but like, I, there's just something to be said about how exciting it is to see people listening to me yelling into the void. Um, since then, I have ended up quitting that job just because it, it wasn't the place for me. Um, it was good people, it just wasn't my place. Um, but I still have the stupid meme page, I'm less anonymous. Obviously you guys were able to look me up, find my name here for the questions you got ready. Um, I'm much less anonymous than I used to be because I don't have to be anonymous anymore, but I mm. keep the page just because I had a blast running that stupid thing.
2: Yeah. It's quite enjoyable. There's some high quality memes, just like top well, tier level. I
1: like to believe so. They're mm-hmm. all my own originals. I don't steal people's memes. So I like to believe so. And then on top of it, um, who uh, Walter Block, used to say that the best way to spread liberty is however you enjoy it because if you don't enjoy it you're going to get burnt out and like i don't know if liberty is really being spread by me posting stupid memes on the internet but i will tell you i absolutely enjoy doing
2: it yeah no i I think it's certainly forwarding the cause for sure for sure and i think a lot of people have Uh, uh, slowly converted to libertarianism due to meme pages similar to yours and yours probably
1: Well, it's so funny. I, I have no evidence of it for mine, but I do see people who are like, oh my god, yeah, I found libertarianism just because I was on memes. And I was like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. But as long as you ended up in the right place, i love to see it.
2: Yeah, as long as you move past the memes and you get into like actual ideas, like exactly. that, that's healthy. If that's that healthy. was just
1: the spark, I am all for it.
2: Exactly, exactly. It's a wonderful way of thinking about it. Yeah. So... You were talking about your work with the Mises Institute. How did you get involved with those people over there? They're wonderful people.
1: So I, I originally had heard of the Mises Institute just from listening to Dave Smith. He mentioned it once or twice. And I started Googling it. And I, uh, I just made it my home screen on my laptop. So whenever I opened open the internet, it'd be their, their homepage. And I'd just read an article on the Mises Wire from time to time. And after a while, I uh, I said to myself, you know what? I'm a grad student. I've got to be more than qualified to write something. Like I, I'm a libertarian and a grad student. I should qualify because the average grad student is an idiot and is not more than qualified.
2: True, um, true.
1: But I, I was like, I really, I've read half the books on this website. I, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be an economist. I want to be a college economics professor down the line. I was like, I've got to be. I've got to be able to write for them at this point. So I started whenever I had a belief that was more than a stupid meme post, but it was something where I was like, I could actually write up on this and really give some thought to this. I started emailing it over to the Mises Institute and submitting it. And I got like probably five straight submissions rejected because I was not a good writer and I was not writing anything original but the more I read the Mises Institute stuff and the more I read my own books and wrote more and got practice, I started to learn what they were looking for, what I was doing wrong. And I, I eventually started getting some actually accepted. I remember when I got my first one accepted, I was through the freaking roof. I was so excited. And then since then, just whenever I'm watching the news or reading a book and I see something and think, you know, that actually would make a great article. I write it up and I shoot it over to uh, to the Mises <laughs> Institute. I've had seven taken over the years, over the past year or so. And then I've had five or 10 more kind of relegated to their power and market blog, which is not quite their headline, but it's still, they're putting it up on the website. And I, mm. I'll, I'll do anything just to get up there. But I, I, whoops, I, uh, I've, that's more or less how I started getting involved. And then from there, I applied to their Mises University program. Even got my shirt on repping it. Nice, um, nice. Love it. And I went this past summer, and that's probably what really got me more involved with them because I got to meet all of the all of my heroes in person. Mm. And on top of it, what was really incredible about that was just meeting all the other students at Mises University, because we'd literally just be up until three in the morning in a hotel lobby discussing Austrian economics. And it was kind of a surreal experience because of course we're all libertarians here used to kind of being alone in our own bubble and we can talk mm. about these things on the internet but nobody in real life is here thinking them and not only were these people thinking them they were thinking them enough that we could argue until the middle of the night until our next lecture started up and it was like oh god we got to wake up time to go <laughs> and then between the lectures and the top of getting to hear these great heroes speak you get to go up of course and just sit down and chat with them in Ask questions and after uh, Judge Napolitano gives his speech where he, you can find it online, he does it every couple years or so, where he ends it with uh, how some of you will, how, how he'll get to die true to first principles, but with his family on a deathbed, but some of us won't be that lucky because some of you will die true to first principles in a government cell and some of you will die true to first principles in the town square, and you're like up and ready to run through a brick wall, and then you get to go sit down and have dinner with the man, and like you get to run through that brick wall, so that mm-hmm. probably got me more involved. I've been to a couple of their events since then. I went to their uh, St. Petersburg Supporters Summit, and then I'm going to an event they've got coming up in February in Tampa, just like a, a luncheon. I can't remember what the topic is for that, what they're discussing, but those, those in-person things, getting to meet them and getting to experience those things have been what's drawn me probably the most into my beliefs and the most into any work I've been blessed with the chance of doing with them. And it's just, like I said, they're the greatest organization in the world. So every time I get to see my name on their website or every time I get to meet one of my heroes, I am ecstatic.
2: Yeah, man, that's super cool. Yeah. I mean, they, they're certainly doing amazing work in the space right now.
0: So they're what probably- advice... Oh, nope. Be go on.
1: One organization. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: Oh, okay. No, no, no. I was going to they're
1: probably the one organization where my my libertarian instinct to say I love them but and have some criticism. I've got no but with them. I love everything they do.
0: Oh. Mm. Well, so what what kind of advice would you give to uh, people our age for getting? Because obviously, like straight to the Mises Institute isn't realistic for. Uh, the, the average high schooler, which is, which is kind of the target audience for our website and our, our brand.
1: Well, first and foremost, I wouldn't rule out straight to the Mises Institute. They't don't, they don't check your credentials beforehand. They're just looking for quality content. So if you're writing quality content, uh, I don't know if they'll hate me for telling them to just bombard your their emails, but shoot it their way, submit it, give it a shot. I mean, honestly, the worst they can say is no. And they always tell you why they said no. You can learn; you'll end up being a better writer because of it. Hmm. Um, but additionally, really, just that uh, obviously, your you said your target audience is mostly high schoolers. So this is a little probably would a couple years down the line, every person in your audience, if they, I, I'm not like I said, I, I checked out your website and I'm not super familiar with everything, but from what I've seen, every person in your audience would. Look love Mises University and benefit from it. So keep that on your, on your uh, back burner. And when you guys are, are college aged, your audience should be applying to that because it will change the game as far as your background as a Libertarian. Um, but on top of it, bookmark Mises Institute on your, on your computer, bookmark uh, Libertarian Institute, antiwar.com, go to the Mises Institute bookstore and buy some books. The truth is when you're in high school, your job probably isn't yet to be the one who goes out and changes the message. Get as rock solid on your message as you can be and learn everything you possibly can learn. I mean, like I said, I didn't get into libertarianism until I was in college and I didn't end up doing anything with it until now, probably five or six years past me really being introduced. While you've got that time, learn everything you can so you're not wasting time that it's wasted on learning because you've already learned it by the time you're ready to go and then on top of that the whole nature of libertarianism is that there isn't is no one solution to any problem issues occur locally look around at what's happening for you locally figure out what the problems are and see how you as a libertarian can get involved in more unique things because for me Maybe there wasn't an opportunity to get involved when I was younger, but for someone else where they are, there may be an organization I'm not familiar with that is the perfect organization to get involved. So keep your eyes open, but most importantly, just keep learning, listen to whatever you can, read whatever you can, walk whatever you can. You're, you're at an age where you can absorb information in a way you won't be able to ever again. So absorb as much of thing at this point in your life, as far as I'm concerned.
2: Yeah, that's truly great advice. I think that's something we can all take to heart. Okay, cool. (laughs) Then I'm going to roll into my question about uh, how... No, okay, this question. Could you quickly break down the work? Because I was reading your article on Mises Institute and I also saw your appearance on another podcast and I watched some clips from that. Could you quickly break down your uh, ideas about the skyscraper curse and how it is affecting the digital age?
1: Okay, so first of all, I I mentioned Hazlitt's book earlier about economics in one lesson being one of the great introductions to Austrian economics. Mm -hmm. Another great one is Mark Thornton's Skyscraper Course or Skyscraper Curse. Gosh, I'm sorry. there. Uh, It is basically a book on Austrian business cycle theory, but it does it in a much more palatable way than some 800 page treatise. It's very anecdotal in that the skyscraper curse is something you can go talk to a perfectly normal person who's never heard of any of these ideas about and they'll be interested. So I highly recommend if you aren't super into Austrian economics, read it because it'll teach you the business cycle theory, which is one of the most important contributions to Austrian economics or by Austrian economics. And if you are super into it, go read the book so that you can introduce other people to it. Mm. But basically the foundation with it Um, I don't know how familiar your audience is with Austrian business cycle theory, but the concept is in bullet points that when a central bank alters the money supply or alters interest rates, people will make malinvestments because they will be entrepreneurs will be operating off of the assumptions of wrong interest rates. Mm -hmm. They'll overinvest in long-term capital projects that the consumption investment ratio naturally really isn't ready for yet. And it will cause the boom that we see in the boom bust cycle that we think of as the economy doing well. Mm -hmm. And eventually that consumption investment proportion is going to snap back like a rubber band. And we will see all of a sudden projects failing a Cluster of investment errors causing what we know of as a recession that is really the healthy part of the market. It's going back to more natural rates. We were in this whole artificial boom and it's bringing us out of that. It just feels like the unhealthy part because it hurts while it's happening. Uh, The skyscraper curse takes that, and like I said, kind of, I like it almost as an anecdote that you can use with people who are less familiar with these things. It is the tendency for skyscrapers specifically the largest skyscrapers ever created to be created at the same time or at least at comparable times as large recessions that we know i know um hang on, i've got it on my powerpoint here yeah i've got so the singer building and the metlife insurance company tower that ta- yeah, metlife insurance company tower were both constructed in correlation with the, with the panic of 1907. 40 Wall Street, the Chrysler Building, and the Empire State Building were all constructed in correlation with the Great Depression. The World Trade Center and the Sears Tower were constructed along the lines in time of the stagflation of the 70s. And the Burj Dubai Tower was created at the same time as the housing bubble, and he's, he's got a whole list of other examples and it started out, I can't remember who it was that said it. some back in the 90s, I want to say, someone had brought up this phenomenon that they were in line with these business booms and bus cycles. And they were saying, what is this? And it was kind of brought up originally as if you guys have ever seen that one stat where films Nicolas Cage appeared in and number of children drowning in pools directly correlate. It was originally brought up kind of as a joke statistic like that as, oh, look at this weird correlation. I wonder what, like, there's nothing really to it. And Dr. Thornton with the Mises Institute in 2005 came, I think it was 2005, came forward and said, well, you know what? It's not just some goofy correlation. There is direct causation between these two. When we see inappropriate monetary policy You can look at Austrian business cycle theory, it says we overinvest in long-term capital projects. And what is a better red flag of an example of a long-term capital project than the largest skyscraper ever created? That's literally the largest capital project there's ever been in history. It doesn't mean that because they created it, we're gonna have a recession. It just gets you asking, okay, well, did they create it on resources that were ready or did we borrow from the future to make that work? I, uh, I wrote a piece for the uh, Mises Institute that, like you said, we, uh, I talked about on another podcast. It was the uh, the Liam McCollum Show. Hmm. And the piece I wrote basically said, well, as technology gets better and better, we're going to see a day come when the largest guys ever recorded gets billed and it's not borrowing on the future. It's not inappropriate monetary policy. It's just that technology is such and demand is such that we were capable of building the largest skyscraper ever, uh, ever created. And it doesn't correlate with any recession. And I don't know if that day is 500 years away or if it's going to be this year. I just know that as far as economics and technology goes, that day has to come eventually. And I Hmm. argued that the new red flag as that day eventually comes instead of skyscrapers, is found in the digital age and the digital world. And I start with, obviously in 2000, we called it the dot-com bubble. So it was almost, it's almost too easy to point to that one being correlated to overinvestment in the digital market because that was what we knew that market as. And then from there we saw obviously the next big crisis with the housing bubble. And that correlated almost directly with the release of the iPhone, which to me was the ultimate digital skyscraper. I mean, the world was changed mm. forever by that capital, that overinvestment in capital goods. And it's obviously not to say that that overinvestment was a mistake. It's just to say we probably could have made the iPhone 10 years before we did. It just sort of cost 10 times as much to gather the resources. Right. Did we make it when we did because the demand for it was there and we were ready to go? Or was it because we had easy money at the time and they overinvested in a long-term capital project? And of all the cluster of errors that were made, this happened to get through and was successful and we all have our magic little rectangles. But was this an error that happened to sneak by and it really was that red flag of the coming issue because it was overinvestment in a long-term capital project? And then I say, okay, looking forward, we look around right now some tech billionaires are literally launching themselves into space. And we see the whole thing with the metaverse going on with Facebook and all that occurring. And you have to ask, okay, are these the next round of overinvestments in massive capital projects that we aren't ready for? Are we ready for them? I obviously, as an economist, I can't know until we see it happen. But I just, I kind of raised that question of the digital the overinvestment in these massive tech projects might be the new place to look for those indicators. And there's an argument to be made that we're seeing those indicators and we've got that crazy monetary policy going on right now that lets them have that success.
2: Yeah, that's beautiful because like that was the question I was just about to ask is do you think that the current move towards the metaphors is the harbinger of doom that we've seen previously with giant skyscrapers?
1: Yeah, I, I think that uh, obviously I don't want to sit down and say, well, the metaverse came out, so we're having a recession this year, because the <laughs> truth is, if I knew when the recession was coming right now, I live in, I don't know if you guys know those tiny houses or those micro houses, whatever they call them on those TV shows. Oh, yeah, I live in one of those, <laughs> I knew when the recession was coming as much as I love my tiny house, I would not live in a tiny house. <laughs> But I perfectly. It you it as man-max. kind of a red flag it. and it's just worth, oh yeah, exactly, just throw it on a truck, go crazy with it, yeah. yeah. But I do, <laughs> I do see the metaverse as a red flag of maybe that is our modern day skyscraper, maybe we'll be fine, but it, it's just worth keeping on the back burner and being aware that that's happening in line with this theory I've laid out here.
0: Interesting.
2: Very okay. But yeah, that makes sense as we move a lot of things to the digital space that even our, our cycles of self-destructive tendencies would also move to the digital space.
1: Yeah, so,
0: exactly. So have you considered- well, Overinvestment,
1: you- there's no reason to overinvest in a skyscraper the way we used to. I'm sorry, I'm moving around here. I'm just plugging my phone in charge. But okay. there's no reason to overinvest in skyscrapers the way we once did because skyscrapers aren't used the way they used to be used. The things that we would overinvest in now, if we were to, would be in the digital world more so than the skyscraper world.
0: So have you thought about AI's influence on this? Because with AI, technology is projected to develop much faster. So do you predict that these cycles will happen faster as, as advancements are made faster?
1: they I mean, they could happen faster. I don't really think it'd be because of AI. The thing is, it's not because we're setting these groundbreaking records that is causing recessions. It's because we're doing them when the natural interest rate is lower than the artificial interest rate that's been set by the central rate. I'm sorry, the natural interest rate is higher than the artificial interest rate that's been set by the central banks. So if AI played a role in simply making technology more accessible, then at the end of the day, it wouldn't necessarily be accentuating the business cycle. It just would be making technology occur more quickly. Back to that, modern, that monetary theory of, have we adjusted the conditions that allow for this investment? Is money more easily available than it should be? Because as long as money is sound, with AI, we could achieve plenty of incredible technological projects, It just mm-hmm. and it wouldn't lead to a recession because the money would be sound and they'd be proper investments rather than malinvestments. So I don't think AI itself would speed up this process. Obviously, there are ways, I'm, I'm not the tech guy like you are, I'm sure there are ways that AI could get involved in monetary policy and lead to a speed up in such a boom-bust cycle or... Not necessarily a speed up, but maybe a expansion of the size of the boom or the bust. I I'm not a tech guy. I couldn't get into that. But AI actually making the technological projects happen more isn't necessarily it. It's more when it happens based on artificial uh, economic indicators.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So so really, it's that the AI creates more opportunities to make these big investments. Yes. It's but it doesn't play a role. It might play a role in the decision-making, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the investments will or won't be made because the money has to be there for, for them to be made. And the AI can present a perfect opportunity, but if the money isn't there, obviously the investment can't be made, is, is the takeaway on that.
1: The AI could actually, and again, I, I'm not a tech guy, so don't hold me totally to this, but the AI, in a way, could actually make the investments more Appropriate because with the advancements of AI, you might not necessarily need the easy monetary policy to go into these investments. You could just, it could just be easier to make the investment now because of the advancements AI made. Mm -hmm. It's all a question of did you invest in the project? And when you did, what were you under the impression of the value of your money being and the value of a loan being? And when you made that investment, did you decide, okay, this was worth it for me because with AI and this loan, we're all good. I can afford what I'm doing. And then it turns out your loan was misleading and you can't afford what I'm doing. Or did the AI do what needs to be done and you actually could afford what you were looking to do? And honestly, we we will have to see how the future Mm -hmm. holds with that because that'll be an interesting thing to watch as life goes on. Let's talk
2: about the future. Do you have hope for political institutions?
1: Again, that's a question that changes from day to day. Mm. I'm probably going to say no. At the same time, I'm currently getting my master's degree and hoping to get my PhD so I can go be a college professor. Mm, And even even though a university isn't technically a political institution, it's less than a hop skip and a jump away from one. It's an institution so that can hand, be political. So I'll tell you that I don't have hope. On the other hand, I'm betting my entire life on these things <laughs> continuing to exist in such a fashion where I could play a role.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's certainly understandable. I think we both lean the same way as we start to look at more political careers for ourselves. And so it's like, well, I hate this thing and I hate that it exists,
0: but... And it might
2: not. And it might not exist in like the next 20 minutes.
1: And you know what? I hope it doesn't exist in the next 20 minutes and I have to adjust my life. Mm. But as far as my life goes, I'm under the impression that things are going to keep on trucking the way they've been. I, I hope we have an absolute overturn in the way our institutions work and it's a whole different world. I don't believe I'm betting on that though. I think our institutions are clawing for their life to stay in power in the way they are. And for the moment I'm not betting against them beating us. Yeah. But like I said, you're you're catching me on a cynical day with that. There'd be another day <laughs> where I might give a different answer. And well, I mean still I think that,
0: it, that doesn't make your education useless though, because I, I think if even if they were on the way out, I, I think we would just see them in a different form. And then I, I then I think you'd be able to take place in that and and be on the well, forefront of that.
1: And that's the real dream. I just Mm. am not betting the house on it quite yet. But I mean, even that you can kind of see happening in its own world. You've got the Ron Paul curriculum. You've got uh, Renegade University. You've got the Mises Institute has a graduate program now. You can see these educational institutions kind of being replaced. And I mean, it's it's on what feels like a glacial level because we're all used to the high-paced world of the internet where things happen fast. And it may not be in our lifetime, it may be tomorrow, but you are seeing a lot of institutions get replaced because people are losing faith in them. And I mean, to me, that's the brain. No.
2: Yeah, truly. I think it's very interesting, the correlation between more of a like Christian ideological idea of like, the second coming of Christ, even though Christ is coming. And he's going to have a sweeping change over our ideas about everything. We still have stake in the game of our current era. We cannot be just oh, Christ is coming, and so we can just like burn it all down because who cares? We still have to care about our climate. We still have to care about being good to our fellow man, and we still have to be good human beings.
1: That is an absolutely great comparison. Honestly, I when you when you opened that, I wasn't quite sure how you were going to do with that, where that was going, but I. <laughs> That was on the money. Hopefully, hopefully all the political institutions come burning down one day. Mm -hmm. But living in the world of reality, political institutions exist. We should take advantage of them where we can. And hopefully, one day, we see the world we're looking to live in. But for the time being, they exist as they do.
2: Truly, truly. So now I'm going to let Miles ask the best question of all on this list. Yes. Thank you. Uh, it's an
0: honor. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the flamethrower.
1: I don't even know what the question officially is with flamethrower question mark.
0: It's not. I'm just throwing it out there. It's just, but let's talk is, about the flamethrower. Talk in about it lifetime. however you want to talk I about it. I said
1: this this week because I bought that flamethrower on Saturday, I think. I uh, In my lifetime, I'm, I'm 24 years old and I've spent all, all this time developing a personality and and a, a, who I am and all of these things about myself. And I've decided that last Saturday, all of that is meaningless. My personality from here on out is man who owns flamethrower. <laughs> it is the greatest decision I've ever made in my life. I, uh, I was at a gun store down in Okeechobee with a couple of my friends and they had flamethrowers there. And I, I looked at my friend and I said, you know what? I'm walking out of here with a flamethrower today. And I was talking to some people after the fact, and they were like, well, how, how'd you know it was a good price? How'd you know what brand to get? And I was like, look, man, if I had done any research, I wouldn't have bought a flamethrower this morning. <laughs> yes. It was the fact that I didn't prepare, and on an impulse, I bought a flamethrower. That's the reason I walked out. And for the rest of my life, I'll thank God every day that I own a flamethrower now. I've only had it for a few days, and it is the most fun thing I've ever had in my life okay so <laughs> how how does it i support it... the second amendment but i'm just pulling out the flamethrower <laughs> there are no buts
0: okay so how, how does it you can run by a
1: flamethrower without a background check and that is the most beautiful thing i've ever heard in my life
0: most beautiful most libertarian thing i've ever heard of that is great so so how does it run like like what is it, what does it fire is it like vietnam style where it's got the napalm or
1: so it you take a uh it has a uh, a little propane tank you put up up front just to make a little pilot light, and then once you've got the pilot light going, you just shoot a gas diesel mixture. Everything I've done so far, I've done eighty percent gas, twenty percent diesel. But I'm gonna I'm gonna play around with that and see see what I like and what I can do with that. And see how see how you can mixture. make it most lethal. <laughs> Ah, exactly. Yes. Well, he was, I was talking with the guy at the store about it, and he was giving me advice for how to make it more distance versus more. Uh, he was using the word Bernie, and I'm trying to decide what is what, how much sacrifice on distance I want for Bernie. But we will, we will find out as life goes on. But it that is, is the
2: best version of Bernie I've ever heard. Like
1: that's verbatim what I said when he said Bernie. <laughs> <laughs>
2: This is the best possible use of that word.
1: Oh yeah, and it was—it's just—it is something else. I, I take it out every night, and it's—it only goes for about forty-five seconds. Me and one of my friends are working on getting a backpack extension that holds another three and a half minutes worth of gas <laughs> in the backpack. Yeah, for uh, when you need it. But it for, is, for, it just for yeah. yeah. when you need it. Something else, man.
2: Now, okay, so he asked the question: Have you thought about adding a little bit of styrofoam to the mix?
1: See, yes. I've had it for three days, so I have not experimented too much with it. Understandable. That's going to be a decision for down the line. I'm not <laughs> going to admit on the record to well, anything of the sort.
0: Okay, okay. Because yes. the problem so we'll with that, the problem with goes. that is then it, become, <laughs> then it becomes like right in between a solid and liquid. It's like gelatinous. So then you shoot it, and it doesn't just burn the air. It, then it sticks to things, and that... Like that that can be extremely dangerous. So I would not recommend that.
1: Like I probably I don't do absolutely that. Absolutely. I, I posted on Instagram the other day I, the whole the Elon Musk quote. Look, flamethrowers are dangerous, and obviously you should not buy one unless you like fun. <laughs> <laughs> like, none of the listeners I would recommend getting a flamethrower. It's completely irresponsible. However, you're making an irresponsible decision i will say it i shouldn't say this i keep forgetting this is targeting high schoolers i should not be telling <laughs> oh no no, no, no it's fun
2: most when of my high school friends already eight, have flamethrowers
1: whatever age you deem that to be you can decide it is very 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 fun owning a flamethrower
0: <laughs> yes
2: <laughs> No, it, it's fine. My friends, we already make our own, so it's all good. You know, uh, we just as,
1: yeah. as one should as a child. We've all been there. Yeah, as I a libertarian, said, it's Nothing like anything I've made on my own. I, I get about twenty feet of range on the mixture I've got right now, <laughs> and that is an experience like nothing I've ever had before. So I I. Love, what do you- I, uh, I have a picture of myself holding it where I've got my end the fed shirt on with my flamethrower below it. And it's probably my favorite picture of me I have anywhere.
2: So how do you feel about being turned into one of the best libertarian memes I've seen in a while, which is you holding a flamethrower saying that you are the best representation of the average libertarian? I
1: died. Oh my gosh. When I saw that get posted. That was by, I want to give his handle right because I think it's got numbers in it. And I want to give oh, him yes. credit so you can all, all your listeners can go look it, look it up. It's techno liberty, but I got to see what the numbers on it are techno liberty 42 he he I, I had no idea it was coming I, i'll chat with them on instagram from time to time and all of a sudden i got tagged in something it was trumpers at their best and it was on january 6th uh I picture of them and then it was anarchists just getting warmed up and it's me shooting my flamethrower for the first time i i literally dm'd him as soon as he made it and i said hey do you mind if I steal this? I don't post reposts on my page, but I need to post this on January sixth. What well, that'll be up on my page on Constitution No Authority because that is <laughs> the funniest picture I've ever seen, and it's only a little because I'm biased towards myself holding a flamethrower. Yeah, imagine oh, no, if sorry. the
0: libertarians stormed the Capitol. Like it wouldn't, Dude, it would be gone.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't even have the only flamethrower there.
0: <laughs> you would have to yeah. like join a line it would almost be like british
2: battle lines they'd just be lined up with their flamethrowers
1: yeah of course the problem is the libertarians would never do anything that organized
2: oh of course not they would never they would start fighting
0: each other at some point <laughs> just like... yeah then no, no, it'd be it'd be someone's like crossing streams in the flamethrower and it'd be like fishing like you're crossing my line and then they just turn and like it's just a... <laughs> it's absolute bloodbath good old libertarians
2: gotta love them but yeah. yeah truly we well, we want to thank you so much for being on the podcast we want to yeah thank you for coming on certainly would you like to take a this opportunity to plug like something you're working on something um, other than your page and also your page please
1: yeah absolutely thank you guys both very much uh I, this has been a blast chatting with you guys i i never know how these podcast interviews are gonna go and every time <laughs> they end up being a blast people who have podcasts that they don't realize what fun people tend to have podcasts. It seems like it wouldn't be that, but it's, it's always a blast chatting on a podcast. Um, yeah. As far as stuff to blog, uh, my page, Constitution and No Authority with underscores for spaces on Instagram, it's probably the best spot to find me. Um, you can also find me on Twitter with underscore no authority underscore because Constitution and No Authority was gone and no authority was taken. Mm. So underscore no authority underscore on Twitter. Um, as far as stuff I'm working on, like I said, I'm uh, I'm hopefully going to be seeing more stuff out of the Martin County Libertarian Party going forward. If, if I've got something to plug for that, I'll reach out to you guys as that begins. I've got nothing at the moment. Certainly. And then I uh, I just before this submitted an article to uh, to the Libertarian Institute. So hopefully if you keep an eye on my page the next couple of weeks, I'll have something to post when that article comes out. I can't I can't know for sure that's going to get accepted. Like I said, I've got a lot. I've gotten a lot of stuff uh, rejected over the over the years. But hopefully I'll if you keep an eye up for that, I will have something coming up on the Libertarian Institute in the foreseeable future. Yeah, for sure. we're looking yeah. forward to it.
2: Yeah, yeah man. Yeah. But yeah, thank you again so much for being on.
1: Yeah, thank you guys so much. Like I said, this has been an absolute blast. Anytime you guys want to guest I'm here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We'd yeah. really appreciate it. Yeah. And Hey, if you ever want to write for our website, I mean, you know, we don't have many other writers, so. you know, but For yeah. what it's
1: worth, I, I may shoot something your way sometime.
0: All right. We'd be happy uh, to publish I'm pretty it. sure we will very rarely, if ever, reject you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank <laughs> if you ever.
1: very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Thanks, man.
1: Uh, thank and for what so it's worth, before we hang up, um, you were saying, uh, you were saying what can high school people do as far as, Getting involved goes maybe they can't jump straight to the Mises Institute. Well, if you can't, write for the right for your organization. That'd be reaching out to you guys in and of itself would be a great thing for your listeners to be doing.
0: Yeah, that'd be the best thing. That's the so best. That's, that's, that's thing actually, better than Mises.
1: I'm not just saying this because I'm on your show. It's now my number one answer for what I think a high schooler should be doing. Reach oh. out to you guys because you guys are currently high schoolers who are doing exactly what should be done. Whether it's writing for you guys or some other way of getting involved with you guys, you guys are the role model for what they should be doing.
2: Oh, thank you, you so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah,
1: absolutely.